everyone, and welcome to New Way, the podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. What does it mean to be faithful at home? Some of us are exploring this more than ever before, as the sanctuary places where we once used to gather are not accessible in ways that we're used to. What is Christmas Eve without us huddled together in pews? glancing around the room at shining and hopeful faces all around us, holding our melting candles as we sing Silent Night? Or what will Thanksgiving be like with only the people that live in our house, our beloved quarantine crew? Welcome to the in-between times. Many of you know we started this podcast to celebrate and examine the relationships between people, our communities, and the ways that context shapes faith. But in the year and a half since we first launched this podcast, we are living in a new world. As we approach the holiday season and COVID-19's first birthday, we ask you to join us as we listen, engage, and pose thoughtful questions to ourselves and to you, our listeners. We aim to prompt faithful action and to invite imagination about a better church and world that could emerge in the months and years to come. We welcome those of you who are newly joining us. We're glad you're here the Lord our God, that's very Jewish language, to pray in the collective, Mm. to have a theology that's in the collective. Very little of our liturgy speaks of my God. It's not so much about my relationship with God. It's much more about our relationship to God as a people. Today, we continue our conversation with Rabbi Elizabeth Bonnie Cohen. We cover everything from her children's favorite objects of devotion to our shared appreciation and occasional regret at the religious obligations we have made and the way they hold us accountable. Those relentless Sunday mornings for us pastors and the incessant Shabbats for the rabbis. We also talk about how being apart doesn't have to mean being alone. Let's listen in. There was something you said in that story of like that being welcome to this man's family Shabbat or friend family table that evening made it feel like that was your story too, Mm -hmm. or that became a part of your Jewish story. And I think back to the text in the Hebrew scriptures and the Torah, hero Israel, the Lord, our God is one, the Lord is our God. And that our ancestor was a wandering Aramean in this recitation of mm. the story of Israel. Mm-hmm. The language is our, but I don't know how you would personally interpret that or if it's like... Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that that's part of what's been so hard actually during this pandemic time is that Judaism is very much a communally focused religion and one in which the divine is kind of activated and certainly illuminated through community. And it's very hard to be Jewish in isolation. Hmm. And so I think that that's part of why sitting around a Shabbat table that's full does feel palpably different. And to me, it's because, you know, my own theology, I believe that everyone has sparks of the divine within them and that as we get to know one another and as we're able to share honestly of ourselves, we bring those sparks into this world. And so if I'm encountering somebody in their fullest self, I'm also encountering an aspect of the divine that I didn't have access to otherwise. And so when that can happen around a Shabbat table, you see all of these sparks of the divine kind of igniting and coming to life. And something that's been so hard for so many during this time is that we are not able to be together in that same way. And so those sparks are feeling somewhat diminished or they're not so easily at our grasp or something. Mm -hmm. And so it's been hard to figure that out. But I certainly, in terms of thinking about 
the Lord our God, that's very Jewish language, to pray in the collective, Mm. to have a theology that's in the collective. Very little of our liturgy speaks of my God. It's not so much about my relationship with God. It's much more about our relationship to God as a people. Mm. We've talked a little bit about COVID, and that has been a paradigmatic shift for all of us in the world in general, and necessarily so. And it's been I think a point of innovation or an opportunity for innovation within institutional religious life. And it's also simultaneously like really hard to find the energy to pivot. (laughs) (laughs) I would say for the Christian pastors listening, it's like we know Sunday is relentless. Like every week there's a Sunday, there's this expectation of a sermon, et cetera, in many communities. And Shabbat is in the same way, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a gift, but also relentless. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if in the last, how many months has it been? A lot. A thousand. In the last 1,000 months, um, have you had these sparks of clarity or newness that feels like, oh, okay, something has occurred to me in this time that could be shifted or you would do differently even when we can all resume our in-person gatherings and collectively gather as a congregation? Yeah, The demographic I typically really am focused on is those in their 20s and 30s. And so I was already, before COVID, starting to kind of get more involved on social media and using that as a a way of engaging people, um, not only to like advertise when we're doing things, but also to use it as a platform for education. And I would even do things like crowdsourcing my sermon ideas, I would say. Like, I have two different topics I could talk about on Shabbat morning. What do you want to hear about? And I would say, like, this is one thread and I'd kind of trace that thread and then I would say and this is another thread and I trace that thread and so people actually would get to the end of that Instagram story and maybe they would help me decide what topic to do but they would also in the meantime kind of get to bits of Torah that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise so I was already starting to do some of that and now with COVID all the more so it's funny that like I feel like you know all this social media stuff people were like oh that's cute you like millennial you do that social media stuff and then COVID hit and they were like wait what's Instagram how do you log on to Facebook what is all this stuff um and yeah so I think that in some ways the social media aspects I'll probably continue to do I think I'll also just take for granted so much less the ability to gather in person. I mean, being without that ability will just make like we I talk regularly with my friends about like what will it feel like to sit around a Shabbat table with one another and like I imagine just like mm-hmm. crying, like being mm-hmm. able to be in the presence of one another again. It's a great answer. It just transported me to this experience of collectively gathering in person with people we love and I almost think like I would want to sit in silence. Right. And then start crying. You know, right. It's just like, can we just acknowledging this point in time and what has come before us and what is possible um, because of that dislocation? Yeah. And, you know, at, on Shabbat evening, on Friday night, there is a traditional song that we sing that welcomes. It's called Shalom Aleichem, and it's about welcoming the Shabbat angels. And we tell our guests every Friday night that, you know, when we think about the rituals of a Shabbat table, we might think about Kiddush, which is blessing over the wine in the day and blessing over the challah. But there's also an essential part here, which is Shalom Aleichem and welcoming in the Shabbat 
brought angels and we really see our guests at the table as being those angels and helping us to fulfill part of the commandment, part of the obligated aspect of Shabbat. They actually help to make our Shabbat holy by being present. And again, without that, we don't have that peace. So even though we continue to have Shabbat meals, obviously in COVID times, we're missing our angels for sure. Yeah. It's lovely. I think of, you know, an angel as being a like helping to steward in the divine, right? Yeah, and, yeah, and being yeah. a vessel of that. Not just a messenger in word, but almost in like presence or something. Yeah. And certainly like again, kind of through my own theological lens of Judaism teaches that we're all made in the image and likeness of God, that we're all carriers of the divine image. And I think that very much so that we all have these sparks of the divine from a very kind of Kabbalistic idea of theology. And so if that's true, then just our physical presence brings those unique sparks of the divine into that room um, that wouldn't have been there otherwise. Um, again, in Kabbalah, which is Jewish mysticism, there's an idea that in creating the world, there were like these vessels that were being filled with light and they were filled so much that they burst and shattered and and that this light disseminated this divine light disseminated throughout all of creation and that each of us are carriers of that divine light and part of our role in humanity I guess is to lift up those sparks to seek out those sparks of the divine and lift them up and so yeah so without you know, that person being invited to our Shabbat table, I would never have the opportunity to encounter those unique sparks of the divine. When I think about mysticism, I think about the unitive quality to it. And I think that's something that, you know, it's hard to discern in everyday experience, especially with all the outlets for receiving information and disseminating information that we have in the 21st century like mm-hmm. what is really real what is not real what is some when someone says something about god or discloses an experience of god mm-hmm. can that be trusted and i think that's one of the qualities in you had mentioned this kabbalistic understanding of the repairing of the universe or the coming together of human beings and God together in a reconciliation type way, maybe mm-hmm. that to me is, is very helpful for the human discernment, like to say like, Oh, what that person said about God is actually not legit, mm-hmm. you know, in harmful versus that it is helping things come together mm-hmm. and it is helping us come together. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Okay. If you're listening and you're not a clergy person and you're wondering like what goes through someone's head as they prepare a sermon or they prepare worship for a community these kinds of questions come into our heads and there is a level of discernment involved and trying to be settled enough where there is something to say that needs to be said or evoked or a question that needs to be lifted up um, that's actually worthwhile that enables us to expand our minds and stretch our hearts and rather than just say the safe thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And to that find that line between how much am I pushing somebody to grow or explore and how much am I, um, you know, you don't want to push people so far that they're unable to stay with you. And at the same time, I think our job really is to push and to um, be critically thinking. Yeah. I wanted, I'm, I'm picturing um, your original description of this Passover Seder and your two kids and Matt and y'all coming together with folks who were all invited. And I'm wondering (laughs) if there are aspects beyond the table that make your home feel 
or communicate that it's a Jewish home mm. and what those might be for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when people come into our, our home, whether they're at our table or maybe they're in our living room for, which is all the same room, by the way, because it's a condo. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if they're, you know, in our living room and they're, we're doing some tech study or something, they're unlike if they were to do it in like a classroom at the synagogue, you know, they're looking at the bookshelves that we have and they're looking at the artwork and they're looking at the ketubah, the wedding document that's on our wall. And they're looking at the different ritual artifacts that we have, the way the mezuzot, which are the little scrolls that we have on our doorposts, what they look like and how they're positioned. And everything becomes a conversation point, Um, just like how in probably, I would imagine your home, there are artifacts that are not only useful or or beautiful, but they all have kind of a sentimental story behind them. And so when somebody points to something and says, oh, that's an interesting Kiddush cup, for example, the cup that we use to bless the wine or the grape juice and uh, special days, it invites a whole story of, you know, oh, actually this was given to me by this person or, oh, this carries this memory along with it. Or, oh yeah, oh, and can I show you this other thing too that goes along with it and see how they work together. And so there's a certain kind of authenticity. There's a certain kind of organic infusion that happens that just doesn't happen when you're at a synagogue where it's not someone's home and it's much more institutional. It's, um, there's more distance there. I think the intimacy of being in our home invites for those kinds of questions. And I think also just being in the home like allows people to open up in ways that they wouldn't otherwise. It, there's a certain sense of intimacy that's formed right away. Our home's just very Jewish. <laughs> like, you know, like you, it's like the ultimate it is. Jewish like home. We have a ton of Jewish books and a ton of Jewish artwork, and we don't shy away from being religious. We are religious people. And I think that often, especially those of us who are working with communities that are like a little bit more on the fringes, mm-hmm. there's a tendency to want to water things down or to give people kind of the light version of what religion is, because we feel that will freak them out or yes. will scare them away. Yes. And what I've found is actually the inverse, is that if we apologize for being religious, then what incentive does somebody else have to take anything I say seriously? If I start the conversation by saying, okay, so we're, you know, we know that we're a bit too Jewish for everybody else, but da 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 Well, I've just totally undercut everything that I'm about to say. Mm. And so instead, if I say like, yeah, we're deeply religious people and like, this is why this, it has brought so much beauty to our lives. And yeah, your Judaism, your religion might look different to you than it does to me, but I still ultimately believe that Judaism has a lot to offer you and beautiful wisdom and inspiring traditions and rituals that could really enhance your life. And I'm going to share with you what's worked for us and what's done that for us. And if that can inspire you to infuse a little bit of that into your life, amazing. And I've found that when we are so authentic and honest with people, not only about our doubts, but also about the things that we have found to really work for us, that that is so inviting to people and really welcomed for a lot of people who are trying to figure out what steps they might want to be taking in their religious lives. Mm, That is such a beautiful point and gives us freedom, I think, of those who are listening, thinking about places in our homes uh, where we're spending a lot of time lately. (laughs) Where do we seek grounding and inspiration? And what physically, visually, 
uh, tactily embodies that for us, that presence of the divine, the presence of um, sacred community, especially as we're unable in many cases to gather with those who bring those pieces and mm-hmm. represent those pieces coming together for us. I totally resonate with that. Um, you know, like if I put this cross up or like yeah. whatever, is somebody going to be freaked out? And I do also find the power of the stories behind that because that in my language would be a witness to something, a witness to something happening or a signpost of um, a transformative aspect of God's connection to us. Mm. Um, we actually live in a home that was a Jewish home oh. and it was very clear the moment we visited this is a Jewish home, and I feel blessed by that. You know, I feel blessed that um, the way the divine has so clearly been um, honored in this space where we live. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I have kind of a fun question just as we come to a close in our conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a three-and-a-half or three-year-old mower, and Siona is one. One-and-a-half almost, yeah. Yeah, one-and-a-half. Do they have an object in your home that they gravitate towards that is special to them or that they're particularly like drawn to that's a part of the Jewish faith? (laughs) Yeah, it's a great question. I think that like in part, the tangible objects are so great, not only for little kids, but also for adults because they're tangible and we can like point to them and say, what's that? And begin a whole conversation. Certainly the mezuzot, the mezuzah that goes the scroll inside of a casing or like an artistic casing. And the scroll has a text of Torah on it. And part of why we place them in the doorpost is to mark a a liminal moment, right? It's this like the space between Mm -hmm. and needing that extra anchor of the divine when we're in this in between. Uh, I think there's like a whole Torah that could be uh, said Mm -hmm. about that. But Maor loves to touch those. And so we actually have one that's uh, to his bedroom that's lower um, so that he can actually reach the one that's on his door. The other object, which I'm not sure if your um, listeners will be very familiar with it, but is something called tefillin. The English word is phylacteries, which is not actually any more helpful. (laughs) Helpful. (laughs) Um, But it's actually very similar to the mezuzah in some ways um, because it's a canister of sorts that has uh, scrolls from the Torah, uh, handwritten scrolls that are inside of it as well, that one affixes to their body. So they're little black boxes that one affixes to the top of their head and then also to their arm. And there are straps that go along with it. And there's a certain way of wrapping it on one's arm and the idea is really to embody Torah that in the same way that we intellectualize Torah that we should also very much see Torah as part of our bodies and our bodies as part of Torah and Maor loves 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 to try on to fill in and to kind of wrap them on his body <laughs> and to daven or to pray in a way that mimics the way that we pray as well um, so that's always been very sweet oh. and Siona she's um, I would say that she actually, she really loves playing with the tzitzit, the fringes on the at the corners of our prayer shawls. Those have always been a spot that she loves when one of us is praying. She loves to take those up and, you know, play with those in her hand. Mm, I love that. Rabbi Elizabeth Bonnie Cohen, thank you so, so very much for Uh, the beauty of this conversation. Thank you. This has been such a joy for me. And it's just so wonderful to reconnect with you and um, to see all the amazing things that you're doing in ministry and helping out so many others who are also doing this work. I know after the last two episodes, you're going to want to hear more from Rabbi EBC. So you can follow along with her teaching and reflections at baseboston.org or on Instagram 
at Rabbi EBC. Friends, stay tuned in the next couple of weeks for some special episodes to help us mark the time of Advent, that period of longing and hope in the Christian faith. If you're new to Advent or haven't even heard the word before, you are going to love our spectacular guests and the moments of reflection in what can be an amazing time of intention and ritual. Thank you for listening to New Way, the podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. We're online at newchurchnewway.org. Our producer is the fabulous Martha M. Sanders. You can see stories and photos from the humans who make up this movement on Instagram at 1001NWCPCUSA. Catch you next time.